You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. I want you to take your Bibles now and turn over to 2 John this evening. 2 John. We are in the middle of a series here on producing spiritual fruit. And at the beginning of the series, we are focusing on the root system. And that's vitally important because starting anywhere else is going to leave us without a foundation, quite literally. Uh, because it is that root system that causes everything else to be solid and held up. It is that root system which feeds everything else. And so I can try to construct a beautiful trunk and attach to it beautiful limbs and, and, and tape on some nice leaves and then super glue on some wonderful looking fruit to hang from it, but it would be fake fruit hanging from fake limbs on a fake trunk that was not drawing nutrients from anywhere at all and it would not stand for very long. The roots are the most important and vital aspect of our production of spiritual fruit. We looked at rooting ourselves in Christ first and foremost and making sure uh, that one, that we are saved, that we are Christians. And I cannot overemphasize the fact that we have that foundation settled in our lives as Hebrews 5 reminds us that we are to settle first that idea of our salvation have it settled have that foundation laid and then no other foundation is to be laid and then we go on to build upon that foundation it's important that we receive the gospel that we receive Christ that we get saved that we place our faith and trust in him and then that we move on spiritually to growth Anything built upon any other foundation will eventually crumble under its own weight. So we first start with that foundation. We start with the root system, being rooted upon Jesus Christ. The previous two or three weeks, I think it was two weeks, we, dealt, we, we looked at being rooted in the Word of God. And the vitalness, and the, 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 when I use that term vitalness, I mean it literally here, that um, our Christian life and walk draws its life, its vitality, from the Word of God and from the Holy Spirit. We looked at the uh, being, being rooted in the Word of God, and tonight we begin looking at being rooted in truth, being rooted in Christ's truth. 2 John, if you're there, isn't very long. It's only 13 verses, and this um, chapter has a whole lot to do with truth. That's what this chapter is about. It wasn't too awful long ago I preached through uh, these epistles. And one of these that I got to here, Second John, I still have my outline, a little outline written in here. And I had um, the first verse, you know, love in truth. And then I had verses 2 through 6, live in truth. And then the remaining section, lacking in truth. But that's not what I'm going to be looking at tonight. Now, we are going to be focusing in on truth. But first, let's read 2 John, beginning in verse number 1. We'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll take some time to go back and look. It says in 2 John, verse number 1, The elder, this is John referring to himself, 
unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I also, but also they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever, grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. And I'm just going to pause there because we're not going to get to this verse tonight, but this is such an important truth here. This, this idea of love that is being broadcast forth from, from so many churches is this wishy-washy, compromising kind of love, which is tolerance and acceptance for all sorts of things. And that in and of itself is not the definition of love. What does he says, say in verse 6? This is love. What is love? That we walk after his commandments. That we hear the commandments of God. And that we willingly submit ourselves to God's commands in every area of our life. I'll keep reading. It says, this is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If therefore come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, and listen to this verse, here's a, a pretty um, serious ultimatum. If there's anybody comes to you bringing not this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ, of who Jesus Christ is and of what he did, look what he says, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it, sometimes? Sometimes when I knock on somebody's door and I don't get a very warm reception, this verse comes to my mind. Or if when somebody comes to my door like a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, and, and I know that they are the exact definition of this passage, they are preaching another Christ. They are not preaching the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Sometimes as they're about to leave and they're like, okay, well, have a nice day. Like, Do I say have a nice day or not? I don't know. <laughs> Do I bid them Godspeed or not? I, I don't know. And here he's, in a sense, justifying a, a harsh cutting off from people who are going to be divisive from truth, so much so that they're leading people astray into hell. That's not a very, it, let me put it this way, it's a very serious matter. And we need to see that their divisiveness, that their lies and deception are actually that serious. I mean, if somebody were to come to your door and they were trying to uh, lead your children astray and lead them out of the house to go and do with them what they will, you're probably not going to bid them have a good day on their way out the door when you turn them away. You're probably going to be harsh and rough because you understand the gravity of the situation as you're trying to get them out of your home. Now, I'm not suggesting that when a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness uh, you know, comes up and knocks on your door that you, you grab a baseball bat and chase them off your lawn like you would you know, a pedophile or something. Now, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that at all. But we need to understand the seriousness of bad doctrine and of deception that leads to hell. 
Anyways, we continue going. Verse number 11, for he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. You know, bidding somebody God, God speed is not the same thing as saying, you know, have a nice day. You know, this is asking, you know, basically saying, God bless you. May God bless what you're doing. And sometimes people will, you know, will knock on their door and they're, oh, that's wonderful what you're doing. God bless you. God bless what you're doing. And they'll want to send us off with their blessings. They don't want to really talk to us, but uh, they'll send us off with their blessings and, you know, God's blessings. We can't do that for somebody that is bearing, uh, that is bearing a falsehoods, anti-biblical falsehoods that lead people to hell. We move on. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Small chapter, very short chapter, but apparently it was necessary. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone to the trouble to sit down and to write it and to send it. And God would not, would not have gone through the trouble to have inspired it and to have preserved it throughout the millennia to make sure that it landed right here in our laps on this very evening. So there's some very important truths then in here about truth that we need to pay attention to. So throughout this section on um, being rooted in truth, we're going to look at our relationship to truth tonight. Later, we will look at our responsibility with the truth and then our reward in the truth. But tonight, we look at our relationship to the truth. We live in an age that celebrates cultural diversity. Culture is very deeply rooted in us. Most of you all are from this area. Uh, and I'm looking around, I'm trying to think if any of you are not from this area. Anybody not from here? So just me and my, my wife. <laughs> you know, we're the only ones that are not, you know, in a sense, rooted here, that our, our culture doesn't come from here. My culture comes from a very similar place, you know, up in Morgantown, West Virginia, and, and hers... Uh, somewhere in Georgia, no, down in near Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and the you know, culture it it has a big effect on us, doesn't it? We get really re rooted to it, and, and culture can be really intriguing. It can appeal to our sense of heritage. Sometimes our interest in culture doesn't really go any further than you know a healthy interest, maybe in the food. Ah, I like Southern foods, or I like Indian food, or I like. Uh, you know, Filipino food or Indonesian food. Indonesian food, man, that's some yummy stuff right there. Lots of, I like food, moving on. Uh, and, and sometimes our interest in culture doesn't go any deeper than that. Just kind of uh, their food is yummy. Sometimes it does go further and more in depth, you know, to their language, to their fashion, to their social traditions. But if you take and you dive into somebody's culture to its ultimate and most dangerous extreme, you're going to be dabbling in their religion and their teachings, and their practices that are contrary to the truth of the Word of God. It's become popular in the uh, 2000s up to this point for a lot of young people to go and to delve into Middle Eastern, or I should say Eastern, philosophies and religions. And so you find a lot of 20-something and 30-something uh, you know, white guys and girls like myself uh, who are dabbling in, um, you know, mysticism, dabbling in Buddhism, uh, and, and weird things like that. And you think, how in the world did you get into that? Well, I liked the culture. That's often where it started. 
I liked the culture. Sometimes it starts with martial arts, you know. I liked the martial art. I thought Kung Fu was interesting, or I liked the movies, and so it got me interested in the culture, and so I went down this rabbit hole, and I eventually visited there, and I went to the Shaolin Temple, and lo and behold, here I am now, a, you know, a Buddhist, you know, like the rest of them, uh, and I'm in, I'm in that ingrained into their culture. Now, the area where we're in Virginia here is, is not a very mixed bag of cultures. More, same thing with West Virginia, you know, it's not a very mixed bag of cultures. Now, Morgantown was a little bit different because there's a university town or city, and so you have a lot of variety that coming into the university city there. Uh, South Florida was, man, it could not have been a bigger mixture of cultures uh, than anywhere else on this earth, I think. Uh, because, I mean, nobody is from South Florida. Everybody's from someplace else, all over the U.S. and all over uh, the planet. Everybody's speaking different languages. You go to the shopping mall, and the majority of the people are not speaking English. You're walking down the mall, and you feel like you're in a foreign country, except that everything's really nice, maybe. And you just think to yourself, man, I can't believe I'm in America right now, because everybody's talking some other language. And it was a very, it was a, a, a I, I don't want to say a melting pot. America's supposed to be a melting pot, Right? What makes a melting pot a melting pot? It is when the items you put into the melting pot melt and they lose their identity to that of the whole. And it all becomes one thing. That's what America was supposed to be. That's what, in many, in many cases, America is. Where we come here and, and, and I lose my English or Irish or German you know, um, background, the accent and, and my love for schnitzel, you know, which I don't really have any love for schnitzel. Y'all had some schnitzel this afternoon, didn't you? Um, I lose my love for all of those things, and I become one with the whole, America. Now, America is a whole lot of different things. It's a big mishmash, but too often we come in and we refuse to lose those things which identify us separately, and we try to just segregate ourselves over into this area or into that area and our cultures and our languages, and we don't assimilate. We don't try to become one, and so it's really not much of a melting pot anymore. But our relationship to God's truth affects all of the relationships in our lives. We cannot take truth... And we cannot take that truth and think of it in the same way as diversity. Our relationship to God's truth affects every other relationship, not just in this life, but in eternal life as well. Your relationship to truth affects you today. Just because somebody comes from a different place and they speak a different language, they eat different foods, they wear different clothing, does not mean that their truth is the truth. Just because somebody comes from the same place you do and eats the same things you do and wears the same things you do does not mean that their truth is the truth. Society likes to teach that truth is subjective. It is subject to whatever your specific conditions or situations are. But that's not what real truth is. Jesus understands that our relationship to truth affects us today if we reject the truth of Jesus Christ. If we reject the truth of His death, burial, and resurrection as a substitute for our sins, we will suffer for an eternity in a place that the Bible refers to as hell. That's truth. It's not a convenient truth, nor is it a pleasant truth. But it is also not a truth that I can afford to hide. A truth that I can afford to set aside 
Well, maybe if I ignore the, the death, hell, and sin part of things and just really, really focus on the getting saved and changing your life side of things, maybe I'll still be able to see some people get saved, even though they're never really going to understand or know why they need to be saved and what they needed to be saved from. I have to present the more unpleasant parts about death and sin and hell because that's what makes the wonderful parts so wonderful. That's what makes the love of God really the love of God. I cannot understand the love of God until I understand where I was going to be going. Until I understand what He saved me out of, then I can really grasp the love of God. Makes me think of John 17, 20, when Jesus was praying and we got to hear um, Christ's intercessory prayer as he prayed for his disciples, also for us. And he says in John 17, 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. In that chapter, John 17, we hear Jesus pray for our faithfulness. We hear him pray for our effectiveness in walking with the Lord. We hear Him praying for our relationship to the truth. And in John 17, 17, a little bit later, He says, Sanctify them through the truth. And He says, Thy word is truth. When He prays for us, and He prayed for you there in John 17, He interceded on our behalf as He continues to do. He prayed for us to be sanctified through God's truth. And His word is truth. Jesus knew His disciples would only grow or become sanctified if they were firmly planted in the truth of the Word of God. It is that truth that John speaks about here in uh, 2 John of what we're reading about. But let's get some, ac uh, some background information first. John refers to himself here as the elder. He is warning in this chapter about false teachers that were abounding there in the first century. And I've talked a little bit about that during our church history lessons in Sunday school. Uh, that the, the, Satan could not destroy the church or persecute it out of existence, so he was simply going to pervert it out of, out of existence. And so he began to you know, introduce all of these false doctrines there, and so John was attacking this area um, of, false, of false teachers. Over in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, this is where this letter was written to. Among these false teachers were Gnostics and that's a name that I've used some recently. Gnostics are teaching that the material world is wholly evil. So anything that brings pleasure, anything that tastes good, anything that's fun, anything of the physical world is wholly evil. And knowledge is supreme. And there is a God, but we really can't know a whole lot about Him. We can't personally know Him. And many of them even denied the deity of Christ. While on one hand, this idea of being free from worldly possessions and things sounds good at the outset, you have on the other hand the fact that they denied Jesus Christ and that they could know a God at all. And so, I guess they had to err on the cautious side uh, and uh, be uh, as holy as they could without knowing what holiness really was. There are a couple views <coughs> concerning who the lady was in verse number one. The elder unto the elect lady and her children. Who is the lady? Well, we're not given a name. Some have suggested that this is referring to a church in the, the female form and the children being the members of that church. Interesting thought. I don't see any reason to think that other than somebody else suggested it, I guess. Uh, I would never have gotten that, though, through uh, 
reading and studying the Word of God itself. I don't see that elsewhere. The other thought here is that it is a specific lady, a particular woman that he is speaking to there in Asia Minor. Maybe she's hoping her home even at, to the church, and the church is meeting there in her house. And that's the direction that I'm going to go with this, and, and the direction I'm going to uh, preach from, is that, that this is a specific woman and her children uh, that he is writing to, and the church is very likely meeting there in her house. Now, our relationship to the truth. Let's go back to verses 1 through 3 here. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I also, but also all they that have, no, that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever, grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. At the very beginning of this letter, John shares uh, the foundation of his relationship there with the elect lady. This letter is about truth. It's not about her. It's not about her hospitality. It's not about her house cleaning. It's not about what color she colored her hair. It's not about how her kids are misbehaving. Uh, this letter that he is sending to her is solely about truth and safeguarding truth. It's easy for us to sit and think, well, it's the truth. It doesn't need me to safeguard it. It doesn't need me to defend it. And in one sense, you're right. The truth is the truth. And whether or not I defend it, it doesn't change the fact that it's the truth. I can't defend it in the public square as effectively as I can defend it here in this church, though. And it is up to me, it has been put on my plate as my duty as pastor to defend truth here within these walls in this church. You must defend truth within your home and say what's coming through that sewer pipeline into our home is not truth. And so we're not going to watch that or we're not going to listen to that, we're going to filter out those things, or we're going to keep those things out altogether because it's dangerously untrue. And we don't want our children to grow up unsure, trying to straddle the fence because they want to be loyal to mom and church. But there's also this other thing that's so exciting and so fun that's also drawing them out and attracting them. It's up to us to safeguard truth in the church and within our own homes and within our own lives. You can go online and you can find people spouting off all sorts of untruths as if they were truth. You can find politicians making pronouncements that this person has done this thing or that thing, and they can do it for months and months and months, and yet it still be completely untrue. That's what this letter is about. It's not about people. It's not about buildings or culture. What's the reason we gather together here tonight? It's about truth. We gather together not for the trappings, hopefully not for the music or the entertainment or the good looks of the preacher, but we gather together here this evening because of truth. I hope that's why we walk into the doors of church, not just to be seen of men, but searching for truth. So what is truth here for us? It is, or what is our relationship to truth? We gather because it is our bond, our bond. It's evident in all areas of life. It's the fact that common beliefs create common bonds. Who do you typically tend to gravitate towards? Typically, you gravitate towards people that share commonalities with you. They share similar interests or similar desire, tastes of food or clothing. 
They share similar hobbies. They come from a similar area to you, and you have a tendency to gravitate towards those kinds of people. I noticed the same thing kind of happening you know, down at the church in Florida. I'm from you know, the East Coast, I'm from West Virginia, and I found myself naturally wanting to gravitate towards people who are like me, who people who ate the same kinds of foods and dressed the same way and, and had the same background, who had the same traditions, who liked the same kind of foods, and I found myself being drawn to want to spend more and more time with those people, and it's not necessarily that that's wrong, but especially as an assistant pastor down there, as you know, a staff member at the church and the school, I couldn't just have my favorites that I spent all my time talking with and, and doing things with, ignoring all of the other folks in the church, even no matter how different they may have been from me. You see, I can have a close bond with somebody who does not speak the same language as I do, or like the same foods as I do, or like the same football teams as I do, or you name it, I can share a strong bond with somebody who has a very, very, very different life experience than I have. Maybe I haven't had much of a life experience all compared to some other folks who have been long down that road of experience. But yet I can still share a bond with them. You know, sometimes when I'm out knocking on doors, I'll see things and I'll think, oh, I might have a, I might have a bond with this person. They'll have a West Virginia sticker on their vehicle or they'll have a West Virginia flag. I remember going to a house one time in South Florida, and they had a West Virginia flag and a Pittsburgh Steelers flag out front. And I thought, these are my people. We're going to get along great. I'm going to go in and knock on that door, and they're just going to automatically recognize that I am the most amazing person, that we're going to hug. This is going to be great. They're going to come to church. They're going to get saved, all because we liked the, you know, the same teams. They were not very nice. <laughs> I did not get to talk to them, but maybe two seconds, and they sent me off on my way. They did not want to talk. We did not get a chance. I didn't get a chance to say, no, no, really, I like your flags. You know, I didn't get a chance to use that to build some commonality there. Well, what's the difference? We were probably from the same area. Most everybody from Morgantown and northern West Virginia likes the Pittsburgh Steelers and, of course, the Mountaineers. That's the state team, basically. And we certainly had some commonalities, I'm sure. Some things we could have said, oh, you're from Morgantown, I'm from Morgantown. Oh, yeah, where'd you go to school? Oh, I went here. Oh, do you know this place? And we, if we had had time to talk, we would have been able to come up with some commonalities. But there was one major thing that came between us that kept us from even getting to any of those things. And that was God. They had no interest whatsoever in having any kind of a spiritual conversation. You see, that is the strongest bond. Now, you might say to yourself, no, 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 uh, culture, that's a pretty strong bond. You are right. Culture is a pretty strong bond. But there are some things, especially this, our desire and knowledge of truth that transcends ethnic bonds and transcends cultural bonds. Because we both take a look at the Word of God and we draw truth from it, that sets us apart as to who we are. And so when we're looking for uh, maybe a, you know, a politician or a conservative talk show host, we're looking for somebody generally that is going to share many of those same truths with us. When we're looking for politicians, hopefully we're not just looking party lines. Hopefully we're looking for somebody that shares many of our core values, as many of our core values that we have as, as is possible, which is getting more and more difficult to find. Our love for truth and our relationship to truth is our bond. Sometimes social bonds may be developed because 
we're from similar geographical areas or because we have similar educational backgrounds. But you know, it doesn't matter. I, I was just thinking on my way here tonight, I'm not, I'm not really still friends with any of the people that I went to high school with. We all had that similar upbringing. We came from the same place. Uh, some of us went to the same church. Uh, we went to the same high school, graduated from the same high school. And I, I don't know much about any of them anymore. You know, the, the commonality has been lost. Now, we still share that bond of God's truth, but you and I, even though I, I, my ancestors, you know, came from a different part of Virginia, which is now not Virginia, you and I share a bond that is Christ, that is the truth of the Word of God. That defines us in all reality. That makes us who we are, and, and we ought not to be ashamed of that truth. We ought not to be ashamed when we say, no, this is right and this is wrong. This is what the Word of God says. It, we ought not to be ashamed to say, no, I don't believe that. We ought not to be ashamed to say, but that's not true. Christians don't have to like the same foods or cultural peculiarities. Our bond is the Word of God. You know, there should be two chords in the bond of truth. Write this down in your memories. There should be two chords to the bond of truth. Love and discernment. Love and discernment. Love that is based in truth is more solid than emotional come-and-go love which abounds all around us. you got that 12-year-old that suddenly has discovered the opposite sex. And... There's puppy love going on, right? There's this infatuation. And they think, they know 100% this is love. This is as love as love gets. It's the strong wave of emotion that just overcomes them. I mean, it's like a tidal wave on some of them and just knocks them silly. And then they act ridiculous. And to them, that's love. That big emotional feeling. And it might be gone within 24 hours <laughs> or a week. They may say or do something that makes them mad, and all of a sudden, that emotional love turns to an emotional hatred of that person. But love that is based in truth is more solid than emotional love. Love that is based in truth creates a deep spiritual bond. This is the kind of love that we're supposed to have for one another. It's the kind of love that God has for us. It is a, a founded, foundational, fixed love that is not dependent upon our performance. Praise the Lord. His love for me does not depend upon my love for Him. His love for me does not depend upon whether or not I've been good enough or lovely enough. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's like, you know, when she tries to doll herself all nice for the, the, the date and then shows up as pretty as she can possibly be. But instead, this time, she decides to show up as, as you know, unkept as she could possibly be for the first date. And he walks up and he sees her with her bedhead and her PJs, no makeup, uh, her mascara from yesterday running down the side of her cheek, you know. And she is taking no care whatsoever to fix herself up to look nice. And he thinks, oh my, <laughs> if this is as good as it gets, goodness. Uh, you see, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He saw us at our worst. 
And he knew exactly what our worst was. And it's far worse than just not doing our makeup. It's far more filthy than that. But yet he still sent his son to die on the cross for us. That is love. First John 4.10 says, talks about it. First John 4.10 says, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Think about this verse. Another good definition of love here. What is love? Love is being so sacrificial to help someone that you love that you give everything of yourself. He sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement, the payment for our sins. In Romans 8.38, it says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. His love... Let me, let me rephrase that. Let me reverse that, I should say. My goodness, my loveliness, my righteousness, my right doing has no bearing whatsoever upon his love because he determined and set his love toward me before I was ever born and before I ever made any of those bad decisions, before I ever chose to accept him. In addition to love, I said the other chord is discernment. Discernment safeguards truth. That's why God does not call us to an indiscriminate bond of love. That's why God does not tell us just to go out there and love everybody for who they are. In one sense, yes. In another sense, no. Truth demands that we reveal to them the truth about who they are and where they're going. In Philippians 1, 9 and 10, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things that are excellent that may be sincere that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ we are to approve that which is excellent our love should abound as it said there with knowledge and judgment which is discernment so god calls us to have doctrinal discernment when it comes to truth to be discerning in the truth so we are to have love this is that twofold cord there concerning truth. We are to have love, but we are also supposed to have discernment. Knowledgeably choosing between that which is right and that which is wrong. While others may share a bond that is, you know, based upon their hobby or their diet or their culture, we are bound together. This group of people here, and other Christians, we are bound together by the truths that are in God's Word. We are bound together as a New Testament Baptist church because we believe God's Word. That is the bond which glues us together. And that term bond is used um, <clears throat> for a reason. A bond is what the, uh, the glue creates between two objects. That glue which brings the two items together, or the two pieces together, and creates this bond, what we would hope to be unbreakable, too often it's not, 
unbreakable. Uh, but this bond between those two things so that when they are removed from one another, one or both of them is broken. There is a bond. It is our bond. Our relationship to truth is our bond to one another. And so you may come from a, a different you know, a tax bracket than I do. And you may come from a very different background than I do. But that doesn't matter. Because you and I have a connection. And that connection transcends culture. It transcends our you know, idioms that we speak or our dialect. That is truth. And that bond is there between us. It says in Acts 2.42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. When Baptists get together, the only thing that needs to be breaking is bread. And I guess maybe at the end of the night, breaking fellowship as we go home. But even then, it's not really that breaking fellowship, is it? Not breaking bonds, not breaking the truth. If our bond as a church is based upon anything else other than the truth of God's word, then it is a weak bond. It is a temporary bond. We can have diversity in areas of culture, but we cannot have diversity in truth. Just like John 14, 6, a very well-known verse, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. And it is that truth which binds us together, and necessarily so. Concerning our relationship to truth, it is our bond, but it is also our strength. Look at verse number two. For the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever, grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. The word truth in verse two there is the Greek word aletheia. And it means objectively what is true in any matter under consideration according to the truth. And when you use it, you know, that kind of a definition, what is true under any consideration, you know, you're talking about a universal truth. Something that does not change based upon who's hearing it or upon the age in which it is being spoken. A universal truth remains the same. You can uh, change uh, the name of gravity, but it is still remains a universal truth. It is the same and it has the exact same acting force upon an object uh, now as it did a thousand years ago and two thousand years ago. It is still, gravity is still true. God, even though He uh, is viewed differently today maybe than the God of the Old Testament, as others will look at Him and see Him merely as a crutch, God is still truth. Jesus Christ is still truth. Even if we weren't the apostles walking down the road with Him, arm in arm, watching Him ascend off the Mount of Olives. He is just as much truth to us as He was to them. We see the word dwelleth here. Dwelleth is the Greek word meno, and it means to remain or abide. So again, we look at verse 2, For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. The truth that we embrace doesn't leave us. It is our strength. It's a scary thing for a young person to grab onto an ideology and to go and to march out for that ideology only to find out that there is nothing of emptiness behind that ideology. That the ideology used them or that it shifted or that it moved or that there was no truth there at all. And so many of our young people today are going out and marching on the streets 
for things that are not truths. Ideologies that continue to change. And too often the church is too content with their anchor, their truth, that they feel they can't move at all. And that they can't go at all. And share the word of God at all. But God doesn't change. We know the verses, Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. You know, the, the hobbies that we enjoy today, they're not going to last forever. If your hobby is, is collecting and building things, those things are going to crash and they're going to burn someday. If your hobby is, you know, hunting or fishing, you know, those trophies and those poles and those guns and those things are going to be given to somebody or they're going to be destroyed one day. If your, your hobby is cooking or driving or whatever the case is, equally applied to all of us here, those things are only temporary and they will go away one day. But truth is eternal. The truths that you believe and embrace are going to be your strength, your foundation today. But even more than that, they're going to be with you forever. The truth of the Word of God isn't just good for a child in school or Sunday school. It is good for you even today where you sit. The same truths that have said the same thing all along and will continue to do so. Sometimes it's weird to think about these church groups from a thousand years ago, often France and in Rome and in Africa. We think about these churches and we think, man, what, they, what must they have preached? Probably pretty similar to what we preach. When you take the Word of God and you open it and you teach it and explain it and you make application of it to the lives of the believer... That is truth, and it has not changed since the Albigenses or the Montanists or the Donatists. It has not changed at all. It is still the truth. It will be forever with you. As you spend time studying and practicing God's truths, you're spending time on something that bears eternal fruit and lasts. So John wrote this letter here to this elect lady he refers to, a Christian lady. He challenged her to be passionate in her commitment here. Her commitment to truth. It seems that she was a hospitable person. And when we're hospitable, sometimes we have a tendency to want to compromise just to be nice. It's very easy for us. In our desire to reach out to people, we often have a tendency to negotiate truths in our own minds and compromise on truths and we say, but they're, they're pretty good people, and, and I can help them if I'm not quite so dogmatic in my own beliefs. The truths don't change. Truths are the strength that we need in our relationship with others. And so if they are living and acting contradictory to the Word of God, it does not help them at all for me to wink at it and say, no, it's fine, it's no big deal, in hopes that I can win them, and then maybe one day... You know, the Lord will work in their heart. It's not doing them any benefits whatsoever. But it also doesn't mean I need to go out and attack everything that I see going on wrong in their lives either. And I, as I get to know them, I attack all the little things that they're doing wrong. It doesn't mean I need to do that either. Sometimes i found that the Holy Spirit does a far better job at, at convicting them of individual things in their lives than I could ever do. Sometimes all it requires is the, is, is the preaching of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to point at specific things and make convictions in their lives. 
But God and His truth are never going to change, and we must not allow our passion for reaching and for entertaining others to bring us to that place where we compromise truth just so that we can be friendly to them. Not only did John remind her here that truth endures forever and it is our strength, but he pointed out that truth is also encouraging. Look at verse 3. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. He says, grace be with you, mercy and peace, in truth and love. We know what grace means and we know what mercy means. We understand what peace means. Grace, mercy, and peace in truth and love. Truth is encouraging. <coughs> truth remains. It's not up to us to determine our truth. That pronoun ought to never be an adjective in front of the noun truth. There is no such thing as our truth. There's our opinions. But there's no such thing as our truth. And you're welcome to your opinions. You're welcome to think what you like about anything. But don't tell me it's the truth. People don't like when you bring a Bible and you treat it like it's authoritative. They say that that's not a good uh, debate tactic. And you know, appeal to authority, they call that. You say, nope, nope, I have the authority right here and you can't argue with that. They say that that's a, a reasoning fallacy. They don't like it when we do that, but the fact is, I have to look at it as authoritative. Otherwise, it's all on my shoulders to figure out what's true in here and what isn't. And that's a scary thought. And, the, and even many Christians look at the Bible that way as somewhat true, a lot of fairy tales and some history. And it's up to us to look through it and determine where the truth is in there. But that puts truth and the defining of it on my shoulders, on fallible man's shoulders, men who make mistakes, men who have biases. Now it's on our shoulders to determine what truth is. That's impossible, and it's scary. And so we take the Word of God and we look at it as authoritative. You have a question, we go to the authority to find out the answer. It's nice to be able to have the authority to go and find out the answer. So many times I have questions about things, and I don't even know who to ask. And when I do ask people, well, I don't know. I've never thought about that before. Well, you're no help to me. I need somebody that says, here and here's the answer. This is what you do. Too often there's not an authoritative truth on some of those things. But I tell you what, there is an authoritative word of truth. So what is your relationship to truth? Well, I can tell you that it creates a bond within us, among us, between us. It creates a bond. That the only way that it's supposed to break the bond between us is if we break the truth. Not only is it supposed to create a bond, but it is also our strength. Our truth is our strength. And so you can attack my good looks. You can attack my talents and my preaching abilities. You can attack how I dress. You can attack my delivery. You can attack all sorts of things about me, and you're probably going to be right on all of them. But you cannot legitimately chip away at the truth that I stand upon. And that's not going to bother me if you do. You may hurt my feelings if you make fun of my balding spot. But you're not going to hurt my feelings because you didn't like what I preached from the Bible or the truth 
that I or you or the church stands upon. Can't hurt my feelings there because that's my strength. You can't chip away at that. It's going to remain no matter where I go. If I fall on my face, if I fail, listen, church, you keep going because you have a foundation of truth. If I fail, there's no excuse for you to fail because you don't need to be building yourselves on me or my ministry or my charisma. You need to be building yourselves on the Word of God. And so you just keep going one foot in front of the other towards what's right. So what's your relationship to truth? It is our bond and it is our strength. Next Sunday evening, we will look at our responsibility to the truth. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.